but no one does this on their own. The path was cleared for me so that I might rise to this occasion. And in the poetic words of Dr. Maya Angelou, I do so now while bringing the gifts my ancestors gave. I, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. Oh, it's been a long time coming. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, in New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Yes, blanketing the globe five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman with an assist from Desi Doyen. But today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show. I'm based at NicoleSandler.com. And I'm, I'm Brad and Desi's utility person. I come in and fill in when I can. <laughs> and I, I thank you for joining me. So there's so much going on right now. So we're going to blast through a lot of the news of the day. And I've, I've got an important interview coming up. There's a new book out by, uh, by Eugene Linden, who has been reporting on climate issues for many years. Uh, the new book is called Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. And it's timely right now because the week began with yet another report from the UN's IPCC. And the bottom line of this report is it's now or never. So it's time to do it or get off the pot. You know what I'm saying. So we'll, we'll do that in the next segment. But, well, I guess we start with the celebration on the South Lawn of the White House today. I know Brad covered the historic moment that took place on Thursday when Katanji Brown-Jackson's nomination was confirmed. A vote of 53 to 47. And shame on the Republicans. Every one of them, except for... Mitt Romney got up and walked out of the chamber as Judge Jackson was enjoying a standing ovation and a commemoration of this historic moment. And the Republicans walked out. 
Shame on them. And you know what? Good on Mitt Romney. So Friday, this was the day that they had the celebration, not in the Rose Garden, because the Rose Garden is smaller and, you know, there's some COVID going around. So they were out on the South Lawn. And, well, um, it was it was a family affair. Kamala Harris gets in on it. Joe Biden gets in on it. Let's start with uh, Kamala Harris, who welcomed the crowd and, and told a very touching story. As a point of personal privilege, I will share with you, Judge Jackson, that when I presided over the Senate confirmation vote yesterday, while I was sitting there, I drafted a note to my goddaughter. And I told her that I felt such a deep sense of pride and joy and about what this moment means for our nation and for her future. And I will tell you, her braids are just a little longer than yours. (laughs) But as I wrote to her, I told her what I knew this would mean for her life and all that she has in terms of potential. So indeed, the road toward our more perfect union is not always straight, and it is not always smooth, but sometimes it leads to a day like today. A day that reminds us what is possible, what is possible when progress is made, and that the journey, well, it will always be worth it. So let us not forget that as we celebrate this day, we are also here in great part because of one President Joe Biden. Okay, yes, we are, right? So then President Joe Biden took his turn. Thank you, Kamala. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The first really smart decision I made in this administration. My name's Joe Biden. Please sit down. I'm Jill's husband and Naomi Biden's grandfather. And uh, folks, uh, now yesterday, uh, this is not only a sunny day. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. This is going to let so much sun shine on so many young women, so many young black women, so many minorities, that it's real. It's real. We're going to look back, nothing to do with me. We're going to look back and see this as a moment of real change in American history. I was on the phone this morning, Jesse, with President Ramaphosa of South Africa. And he was talking about how the time that I was so outspoken about what was going on in my meeting with Nelson Mandela here. And I said, you know, I said, I'm shortly going to go out, look, I'm looking out the window. I'm going to go out on this, what they call the South Lawn in the White House. And I'm going to introduce to the world, to the world, the first African-American woman out of over 200 judges on the Supreme Court. And he said to me, he said, keep it up. Keep it up. We're going to keep it up. Okay. He's going to keep it up. So, so in attendance, along with friends and family and dignitaries, were the 53 senators who voted for her confirmation, I believe. I mean, I don't have proof that um, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins 
and Mitt Romney were there, but they were all invited. And again, Susan Collins now has COVID, so she probably wasn't there. But Joe Biden made a point to call out the people who were so horrific to Judge Jackson during the hearings. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I knew the person I nominated will be put through a painful and difficult confirmation process. But I have to tell you, what Judge Jackson was put through was well beyond that. There was verbal abuse, the anger, the constant interruptions, the most vile, baseless assertions and accusations. In the face of it all, Judge Jackson showed the incredible character and integrity she possesses. Poise. Poise and composure, patience and restraint, and yes, perseverance and even joy, even joy. Even joy. Yes, even joy. Well, the joy comes from listening to Judge Katanji Brown Jackson talk about her family, because her family's magnificent. First, of course, there is my family. Mom and Dad, thank you, not only for traveling back here on what seems like a moment's moment's notice, but for everything you've done and continue to do for me. My brother Kataj is here as well. You've always been an inspiration to me as a model of public service and bravery, and I thank you for that. I love you all very much. To my in-laws, Pamela and Gardner Jackson, who are here today, and my sisters-in-law and brothers-in-law, William and Dana, Gardy and Natalie, thank you for your love and support. To my daughters, Mm. Talia and Layla, I bet you never thought you'd get to skip school by spending a day at the White House. (laughs) (laughs) This is all pretty exciting for me as well, but nothing has brought me greater joy than being your mother. Oh, I love you very much. And they seem so proud of her. Patrick, thank you for everything you've done for me over these past 25 years of our marriage. You've done everything to support and encourage me, and it is you who've made this moment possible. Your... Your steadfast love gave me the courage to move in this direction. I I don't know that I believed you when you said that I could do this, but now I do. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so forever grateful. So she did. She 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 did the the obligatory family stuff, and you could tell she did that because she loves her family. I'm not trying to make light of it, but then. She spoke about the historical nature of what just happened. It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. But we've made it. And a standing ovation. All of us. All of us. (laughs) 
and, and our children are telling me that they see now more than ever that here in America, anything is possible. Hmm. Anything is possible. They also tell me that I'm a role model, which I take both as an opportunity and as a huge responsibility. I am feeling up to the task primarily because I know that I am not alone. I am standing on the shoulders of my own role models, generations of Americans who never had anything close to this kind of opportunity, but who got up every day and went to work believing in the promise of America. Mm showing others through their determination and, yes, their perseverance that good, good things can be done in this great country. Good things can be done in this great country, but we, we have to work at them more and more. She, luckily, is a good thing that came out of this. All right, one more closing uh, sentiment from soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. And the only reason she's not now is because Breyer is serving out the remainder of this uh, Supreme Court term. So in June or July, she'll be sworn in and will then be Justice Jackson. To be sure, I have worked hard to get to this point in my career, and I have now achieved something far beyond anything my grandparents could have possibly ever imagined. Mm. But no one does this on their own. Oh no. The path was cleared for me so that I might rise to this occasion. And in the poetic words of Dr. Maya Angelou, I do so now while bringing the gifts my ancestors gave. She's awesome. This is the best thing that could have happened to us right in this moment. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who will be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. And not only that, the first public defender on the Supreme Court. So she's going to bring a whole different perspective to that bench, a much needed perspective. It's a good day. This is a good day. We need to celebrate the good things because there's so much bad stuff happening. You know, and I, I guess we need to get to some of that. And I, unfortunately, we go into a, and I told you so moment, because this is the, the guest that just won't leave. You know him. You know him well. COVID. There seems to be a swarm of new infections in D.C. with a bunch of new cases reported in the days since last Saturday's Gridiron Dinner, which is a major D.C. media event. Well, we know that the new variants of Omicron are highly contagious, but this is ridiculous. First, we learned that cabinet members, Attorney General Merrick Garland and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, Congressman Adam Schiff and Joaquin Castro, and at least half a dozen journalists all tested positive after attending the event. 
On Thursday, Speaker Nancy Pelosi released a statement saying that she had tested positive for COVID-19, although she's not suffering any symptoms. And the names keep coming. Representatives Angie Craig of Minnesota, Peter DeFazio of Oregon, and Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia also tested positive. By the way, Senators Collins and Warnock were both in attendance on Thursday for Judge Jackson's confirmation vote. Collins was one of the few in the chamber who wore a mask. Warnock did not. As for new COVID relief, well, senators on Thursday admitted that they're delaying voting on a bill to put another $10 billion into pandemic programs until after their two-week spring break. Really? Top administration health officials have said that further threatens the country's ability to fight the virus and prepare for potential surges and even more variants. But there is some good news to report. A federal appeals court on Thursday upheld President Biden's coronavirus vaccine requirement for federal workers, reversing a lower court ruling against the mandate. Biden said in September that the vast majority of federal employees would have to get vaccinated or face discipline when a district judge in Texas blocked the policy in January, saying that Biden couldn't make workers, quote, undergo a medical procedure as a condition of their employment. But by that point, 95 percent of federal workers were already vaccinated. Well, now a panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans ruled 2-1 that Brown lacked jurisdiction and they ordered that the lawsuit challenging the mandate be dismissed. Got it? Okay. Moving on to the war zone. A Russian strike on Friday hit a crowded train station where civilians were evacuating from the Donetsk region, killing dozens and injuring hundreds. Upwards of 8,000 people were inside the station when the missile struck. The Donetsk region was being evacuated, and this train route was supposed to offer a safe harbor to safer areas of the country. The Russians knew that this train station was being used to evacuate civilians. And this attack comes as Russia continues shelling cities in the east and south of Ukraine, Although Russian troops have, quote, fully withdrawn from northern Ukraine to Belarus and Russia, that according to the UK's Ministry of Defense. So from the what can we do about it files, the United Nations General Assembly voted Thursday to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. It was a very rare rebuke of one of the five countries with veto power on the UN Security Council. Now, I know that's not what President Zelensky had asked for. He wanted Russia expelled from the Security Council. But that's easier said than done. So I guess this is the next best thing. Russia's deputy ambassador said after the vote that Moscow had pulled out of the Human Rights Council before the vote and said that the council had been taken over and politicized by countries with their own, quote, blatant and massive violations of human rights. There are no words. But Congress is acting when and where they can. The Senate on Thursday unanimously approved two bills that would suspend normal trade relations with Russia and ban Russian oil imports. The House backed the latest version of these proposals with a little bit of opposition, sending them to the president for his signature. There had been a bit of a standoff recently, but momentum picked up again after evidence of Russian atrocities in Ukraine surfaced over the last few days. Closer to home, New York's attorney general has asked a court to hold the former guy in contempt for allegedly failing to comply with a court order that he turn over certain documents for an investigation. So the Office of Attorney General Letitia James 
filed a motion on Thursday saying that Trump did not comply at all with the subpoena for documents and that his attorney said he would not produce any documents in response to the subpoena because his attorneys believe that if the documents exist, the Trump organization would have them and the attorney general's office, quote, will just have to wait until the Trump organization completes its production to get them. Huh? James is asking the court to impose a fine of $10,000 a day or whatever amount the court deems sufficient to get Trump to comply. Meanwhile, the criminal investigation into Trump and his company is also allegedly continuing as Manhattan's new district attorney said on Thursday that the investigation is still in progress and they're reviewing new evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll wait and see. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, in an interview on Thursday with Jonathan Swan of Axios, said he would still support Donald Trump if he's the 2024 Republican presidential nominee, despite having previously called him, quote, practically and morally responsible for the January 6th insurrection. When Swan asked if there's anything a Republican nominee could do to lose his backing, McConnell was stumped. Amazing. And finally, the U.S. is not the only nation looking down the barrel of a right-wing authoritarian takeover. The general election in France is right around the corner. Twelve candidates qualified this year, so they all compete in a first round of voting happening this Sunday. The top two vote-getters from that round then go to a runoff two weeks later. That's it. No electoral college, no, no candidates saying they'll only accept the results if they win. Frighteningly, at this stage, it looks like the two finalists will likely be a repeat from the last election, a contest between the current president, Macron, and his ultra-right-wing opponent, Marine Le Pen. There are no words. And one more late-breaking story to share with you. And I can't believe that I have to report this. But the jury is back in the Michigan kidnapping case of the men charged with the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And the bottom line is, two of the men were acquitted and the jury deadlocked on the other two. Apparently, the jury went with the defense argument that the FBI entrapped them. At BuzzFeed News, Ken Bessinger wrote, the outcome of the trial is a stunning rebuke to the prosecution, which at times appear to view the case, one of the most prominent domestic terror investigations in a generation, as a slam dunk. The split verdict calls into question the Justice Department's strategy, and beyond that, its entire approach to combating domestic extremism. Defense attorneys in the case, along with observers from across the political spectrum, have argued that the FBI's efforts to make the case, which involved at least a dozen confidential informants, went beyond legitimate law enforcement and into outright entrapment. And then there's this, he writes, it may also leave the two defendants who chose to plead guilty and testify for the government, Ty Garbin and Caleb Franks, wondering whether they made the right choice. I can't believe they had two participants who pled guilty and they still found two of them not guilty and deadlocked on the others. Just incredible. All right, let me counter that with something a little more palatable. The leader of the Proud Boys, a guy named Charles Donahue, admitted that he planned to storm the Capitol and he will testify against the others. Donahue entered a guilty plea 
admitting being one of the organizers of the January 6th assault on the Capitol, which he said was intended to disrupt the congressional confirmation of the Electoral College vote. Now we're getting somewhere. All right, quick time out, and then we're going to come back and talk about (laughs) the future of the planet. Will it survive? You know, just a little light fare for today. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host on the broadcast. On the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. Welcome back to the broadcast. Of course, the sounds of Marvin Gaye, who was so far ahead of his time, singing about the environment, ecology, the planet, and a whole lot more. Well, today we are focusing in on the planet, the environment and so much more. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host, filling in today for Brad and Desi. And, well, because Desi does such a great job twice a week with the Green News Report, I figured this guest was perfect for the broadcast. Joining me on the line right now is Eugene Linden. He's an award-winning journalist and writer who writes a lot about science and nature and the environment. He's written nine books, and a novel, so 10 books, right? Um, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, he focuses in on, on climate change. And the brand new book is just out a couple of days. It's called Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. Why did you start in 1979? Because that was the year uh, that it first came to presidential attention. Uh, Carter had convened a blue ribbon, ribbon panel, distinguished scientists, and they said that if we don't take action on climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, we're really going to see changes by the end of the century. And they were dead right. Um, and um, the uh, we, and in fact, they, well, they weren't dead right. They were wrong. We saw changes 15 years earlier. <laughs> right. And then in the 90s, of course, they became incontrovertible. Um, and so um, I... Uh, it had some momentum, um, the issue, and had Carter been reelected, um, and we might have started taking action um, in uh, pursuing. Uh, he started a, um, uh, fostering innovation in renewables and lowering the price of renewables back then, and all that ground to a halt when Reagan got elected. And so we might have had some momentum on the issue going into the 90s. Um, but even as late as the 90s, we probably could have taken actions that uh, would have halted the rise of uh, uh, emissions, and yet we didn't. Right. We've been warned for, for so many years. And you, you're right. So Jimmy Carter famously put panel, solar panels on the roof of the White House. Ronald Reagan tore them down. You know, they always right. talk about him tearing down something else. We should remember <laughs> wall, that he right. tore down the, the solar panels at the White House, and that really set us back. A long way. Well, yeah, the uh, uh, Phil Clapp said that uh, it um, Reagan's action set back solar research ten years. Um, I mean, this is the the great tragedy, of course, is that um, people say, uh, you know, we really couldn't have done anything in the early '90s because renewables weren't ready. And I use the analogy in my book where I say it's sort of like the football sh- coach 
who shoots his star player in the leg and then benches him because he's injured. Um, the reason, uh, if we go way back to the turn of the 19th century, uh, the, uh, the 19th to the 20th century, renewables were being, uh, it was the end of Victorian optimism but uh, and technological optimism and renewables were being explored every which way. Thomas Edison uh, famously uh, said he wanted to capture the heat of uh, and the energy of the Gulf Stream, 15 miles off the California uh, coast, and put impellers in the bottom of the ocean, 8 billion gallons a minute moving through it. It was just an inexhaustible source of energy. Then what happened? Something better came along. That was oil. Hmm. And it was so cheap. And it's, it really is a great fuel if you don't consider the external cost. Um, it's transportable, it's packed with energy, everything else. And it, renewables went into a coma for basically the next 80 years. They come out of a coma briefly in the Carter years. Uh, they go back into a coma in the Reagan years. Um, they come out of a coma in the Clinton years. They go back in, and so on as, in the Bush years. And right. so it's been this sawtooth uh, approach to uh, renewables, which is really a tragedy. But now, of course, uh, they're coming into their own. Well, they are, but we're going to get there. So I remember, you know, you mentioned the 90s. In the 90s, I was living in Los Angeles. And I remember when the electric car, the the EV1 was on the road. There was one that was right down the street from me. And I'd be out walking my dog in the morning and all of a sudden turn around and there'd be this car behind me. You'd never heard it. (laughs) But for anybody who watched the movie, Who Killed the Electric Car?, that again set us back so many years, didn't it? They and it's all uh, yes. industry that that was responsible for that, right? Well, yes, we could have uh, shifted to electric cars a lot earlier. <clears throat> I think the early efforts, like the EV one, were designed to show that they didn't work. You know <laughs> that, that they're that, that they're tiny, they're slow. You huh? have to recharge them forever, yeah. um, and you're going to get crushed in a car crash. Oh. And but of course, then. We now know that they do work. Um, you know, <laughs> a Tesla wipes the floor with any piston engine car in terms of any of the, you know, uh, macho characteristics somebody might want. And, uh, and of course, all the big automakers are now getting religion because Tesla's market capitalization is larger than all the automakers combined. Um, and so this is always the case, right? IBM didn't see the potential of the personal computer. Um, the big companies always want business as usual to continue. Um, and they're not that interested in innovation that's going to uh, uh, obsolete, you know, their multi-billion dollar installed base of manufacturing. Right, right. Well, are people, do you think, finally getting the message? I mean, we, we had the second report from the, the IPCC in, in just a couple of months that was kind of pants on fire. This was, it's now or never are people understanding that or or because I don't think they are? Well, you're well, you're right. And, and the interesting thing about the IPCC is they were a problem for the first 15 years of their existence because uh, people were taking from the, um, their reports the message that we had time to deal with the problem. Mm. when in fact, we didn't last 10 years. They've certainly gotten religion on the issue and um, their reports have actually caught up to the reality, so to speak. And they, they've been great in the last 10 years. Unfortunately, they're. 30, uh, like even one section of the latest reports, 3,700 pages and virtually unreadable for a, for a layman. Right. Um, but um, they, they have caught up, but I, the message is not getting through. And the issue, the problem is that sometime in the late 90s, the issue became politicized. 
And once an issue is politicized, the messenger is, if the messenger is deemed illegitimate, then the facts don't matter. And we've seen that just in the last couple of years with COVID, which became politicized instantaneously. And so people dying of the disease are denying that they have a disease. And so if somebody can be dying of something and deny it exists, it's easy enough to deny that climate change um, is a problem when it's in their minds way off in the future and maybe a hoax, right? Right. So facts don't matter. And that 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 is a, a, a problem that it is very difficult to get past. Uh, it is, but we, we see people who deny reality every day and it's, uh, you know, I call it opposite world. You can call it gaslighting or projection. It's a little bit of all of that. But I, want, I do want to ask about the book. So the book is just out this week, Fire and Flood, A People's <clears throat> History, nod to Howard's in, uh, of climate change from 1979 <laughs> to the present. And you have it sort of separated. You have it set into four clocks. Can you explain what the four clocks are? Yeah, it's a device I use to tell the story because every decade there have been four different realms that have been important to climate change. One is reality, of course, as climate's changed. Two is the scientific community. And that's just, there's a structural lag behind reality just because you have to amass data, analyze it, um, then get it peer reviewed and then published. So mm-hmm. it, it lags reality and it also has a very difficult task because they're trying to study something even as that thing is changing. The third clock is the public, and that's lagged reality and uh, the scientific uh, uh, consensus by decades. I mean, even a couple of years ago, a poll showed that 45% of the public didn't believe that climate change would be a serious problem in their lifetimes. This is even as climate change is a serious problem in their lifetimes. Um, And then, um, and so the public has been confused and disengaged, and that has been a huge problem. Um, which you alluded to earlier. And then the fourth is, of course, business and finance. And for 30 of the 34 years of the modern climate change era, they've been a drag anchor. Um, At first, they saw regulation or actions on climate change to be a threat to profits. Only in the last couple of years has major businesses and major financial institutions realized that climate change is actually a threat to business itself. So they... uh, climate change, uh, the business and finance community is is most of the reason we have not taken action mm-hmm. on climate change because they've used their playbook that they've perfected um, over the years. And uh, one it was originally devised to stop regulation of cigarettes, then uh, the ozone uh, depleting chemicals. And, and the playbook involves, you know, demonizing the scientists, disputing the science, saying there's no consensus. Um, and um, saying the scientists have mixed motives, that they're being paid to do this, and then finally saying, you know, we need to study this more, we have lots of time. And that last phrase that we have lots of time was the most damaging one of all, because if people think we have time to study something, they're not gonna feel, put it at the top of their agenda. Right. But so so one of the, the aspects of the world of business and finance where this, you would think they would have had the light bulb moment years ago, is the insurance industry. Now, I live in South Florida. Um, We're seeing, first of all, you cannot get homeowner's insurance down here. Uh, When I first moved back down here years ago, there was the insurer of last resort that was formed by the state called Citizens for people who couldn't get property insurance anywhere else. And now even Citizens is refusing to write policies for, for new homeowners. So, 
it, there's this dilemma there. They've had to pay out so much, especially over the last few years, in damages from storms, not just hurricanes. And and we've been lucky here in South Florida. It's hitting everywhere else. Knock on uh, wood laminate here. Hasn't hit us here in South Florida in a few years, yet our rates keep going up. But they keep insuring people and they keep building high rises on the beach. This isn't, what are they doing? Well, you touch on the really heart of the matter, and that is, uh, I wrote an article for Time in 93 saying that the insurance industry was going to be the white knight of climate change because they live and die by pricing risk appropriately. And it turned out they were a very timid white right, white knight. Um, and the reasons are a couple. One, at the reinsurance age, uh, uh, part of the insurance industry, which ensures catastrophic risks, they turned out to be completely ingenious in spreading and offloading risks. Um, and then at the retail end, the incentive is to keep writing policies until you can't. What happened in Florida, of course, was after Andrew, um, they, uh, like a dozen insurance companies were rendered insolvent. And so uh, uh, the rest of them said, sayonara, we're out of here. And the state said, uh, you know, not so fast. Uh, you, then you can't write auto insurance, which is highly lucrative. But in any case, the number left anyway. And then they formed citizens in 2002, as you, as mm-hmm. you say. It quickly became the largest insurer in the state. Yeah. That tells you they're underpricing insurance because if they weren't, people would prefer to get private insurance, which is uh, much better. Um, and so they became the insurer of last resort. But of course, they are underpricing insurance, which in turn is an incentive to move into Parm's way. Um, and so if, uh, but it's, a, it's an, almost an insoluble problem for, for Florida. And that is that, um, like, the Florida Keys are entirely dependent on the tourist industry. Right. If they ever priced insurance, homos insurance in the Florida Keys for the real risks of climate change, nobody could afford to live there. There wouldn't be any tourist industry. So it, it, it's not a simple problem. But um, the it is a mystery that millions of people um, have moved to the coasts of Florida since Hurricane Andrew, yep. since, it, uh, since insurers pulled out. And um, there's a couple of explanations for that. And that is that a lot of the uh, movement in particularly the Miami area has been by the wealthy. Um, And, you know, uh, I, I, we all know people who've done that. And I think the attitude is, is, uh, you know, if I, if, if, if this lasts for 10 years, I'm okay. You know, Um, and of course, a lot of it is for tax reasons um, and for the really high end um, in, uh, Saving moving from New York State to Florida, Miami in three years pays for your condo wow. <laughs> in tax yeah. savings. So, yeah. I mean, that you know, so that's a separate kind of incentive. And then, of course, there's flight capital, you know, from Latin America, you know, yes. and from Europe and from Russia. Well, well, there used to be anyway from Russia. Um, and uh, and so there's a lot of different financial incentives that have nothing to do with climate change that explain the, the bulge in Florida. Uh, California is a very interesting case in point because um, I, they, the reinsurance industry knew about the threat of climate change fostering more intense and larger fires forever. They, they've been, uh, reinsurance industry well understands the uh, threat to the business of climate change. But um, the incentive, again, at the retail level is to keep writing policies until you couldn't. Then, of course, the big fires hit. And they say, uh, the insurance companies say, well, we want to get out of here. And then the state says, not so fast. You're a regulated mm-hmm. industry. It's, uh, it's, um, there's a moratorium. 
moratoriums for a year or so. And then as soon as the moratorium ends, AIG, the largest insurer in the state, flies and people are totally out of luck getting insurance um, for fire. And how do you get a mortgage without fire insurance? Well, then you get the bare bones, you know, state sponsored thing, of course, which is shifting the risk to the taxpayers. Right. So the the underpricing of risk has had profound and negative effects in terms of upping the ante for a crisis that is going to be coming down the road. Right. You know, yesterday I read a news item that there, there was a study, I forget who did it, but it, they, it found, it's almost like, duh, common sense, that the people who, um, who had experienced an extreme weather event, uh, 78% of them are more likely to believe in, the, in climate change, that this is happening and that the, the effects are being felt now. I don't know that it t- why it takes that, but as opposed to those who haven't yet experienced one, I would think the people in Houston who dealt with what was it, Harvey, and then it was like a one, two, three whammy. How many times can you get hit? And and I, I Again, guess the answer is is that the issue became politicized, mm-hmm. and because um, you know you have to sort of say, well, the the. Uh, the elites, you know, the, the liberals were right. Um, <laughs> you'd rather die than say that in some states. I yeah. mean, it is remarkable to me that uh, Florida is a good case in point where you have states where Rick uh, Rick Scott, the old governor, right? Uh, yep. You wouldn't even let people use the phrase you global could warming. Not, you couldn't say global warming. You couldn't right. say climate I mean, change. It, you couldn't talk about these things, which we're living in. We're in a state that is perhaps more vulnerable to climate change than any other state in right. the union. Which, and, and this is the case throughout. In Texas, of course, um, every governor has to sort of pledge allegiance to denying climate change. Um, Arizona, same thing. Um, all the all the most exposed states are, are most of them are red states and most of them have uh, politicians who can't even acknowledge the risk of climate change. And so when the electric grid fails in Texas, um, they blame it on wind farms when, in fact, it was freezing the natural gas infrastructure that caused caused the uh, the, uh, the the breakdown. Interesting. And uh, it, it, it gives you an idea of what it means when an issue becomes politicized. Uh, it, it's crazy. We're, we're speaking with Eugene Linden. The book is Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. And F- Fire and Flood is is the perfect title because that's what we've been living through for the last few years. It seems if you're out west, there are fires. If you're, if you're in Miami Beach, they are now, it's amazing. Anytime there's a full moon, even when there's not, the water is coming above the road. So now what are they doing? They're raising the roads. No, it's like um, you've got a gun to your head. And so instead of putting the gun down, you put on a helmet. I right. Mean, it, it, That's it. Not, That's exactly it. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, the, it turned out that, you know, it's not just the U.S. I mean, think of Australia. Mm-hmm. First, they have like years and years of droughts and fires. And some of the biggest wildfires in global history and then, of course, now they or recently they just had epic floods. Yep. And so they're 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 getting both ends of it in the same in the same place, right? In, right. Uh, on 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 the east coast. Um, yeah. Well, that I mean that. Um, now, that but is that is issue. that that's a result of the the warming of the planet. Now, let me ask you, what's going on in South America, where the Amazon is burning is is being destroyed, it, and that that's feeding 
the the warming of the planet, is it not? Well, yes. I mean, on the one hand, um, the, uh, the the Amazon is one of the great carbon sinks in the planet. I mean, and the the the, the burning of the Amazon um, has to do with a combination of dr- truly awful policies by Bolsonaro uh, and some and and a drying of the climate, and it, it is going to have global consequences if it gets out of hand. Um, the uh, I, I think that is an emergency issue uh, because there is absolutely no uh, attempt to, to stop illegal deforestation, which was under control in the Amazon for a number of years. Actually, Amazonas, the, uh, the central state, had an increase in forest cover up until recently, which is extraordinary and great. It shows it can happen. But uh, Bolsonaro is like a pox upon the land. Yeah. And um, the uh, and, and I, I, you know, of course, he buys into everything. He's even, a, I think he's a COVID vaccine denier as well. Um, so, you know, there is this sort of toolkit to be on the other side of the issue where you can't believe in vaccines, you can't believe in climate change. And unfortunately, it has real world effects because the number of people who adhere to these ideas is substantial. Right. So, so the, but we've got these kind of things happening all over the planet. So we talked about the Amazon. Then we go up to the Arctic, right, where the big you know, ice shelves are breaking and falling apart. And if I, if I read this correctly, they're having record high temperatures, right? So different parts of the world are feeling the effects in different ways, but they all contribute to making more disastrous events that, you know, there's confusion that people go when there's a a major Superstorm or something. Well, is that weather or is that climate? At this point, when we have these once in a thousand year storms that are happening every year, uh, it seems, can we say that's climate and not just weather anymore? Well, climate's certainly a component. I mean, weather is what climate is what you expect, weather's what you get. <clears throat> and of course, with climate change, our expectations are that we're going to get different weather. Uh, the Arctic's an extraordinarily interesting place. It's 3% of the world's landmass, but because so much happens in the Arctic that uh, relates to the lower latitudes, it, it punches way above its weight. For instance, um, those extraordinarily high temperatures um, are also related to the extremely cold winters uh, that we've sometimes had in the Northeast, mm-hmm. um, where the jet stream gets diverted and, um, and plunges way to the south, bringing Arctic air to the south, and leaving the Arctic basking in mid- Mediterranean warmth. It was temperatures in Antarctica, the Antarctic, were 70 degrees, degrees above normal a couple of weeks ago, right. which is unprecedented. And so what is happening in the Antipodes, the two ends of the Earth, is really quite traumatic. It's the most extreme point. The, and the Antarctic Peninsula is warm faster than almost any place on the planet. So is the Arctic. Um, and the, the, the reasons are, in part, is that when the Arctic is covered with ice, it's a white surface, and it actually reflects a lot of heat back to the atmosphere. As the sea ice disappears in the Arctic, you replace a white surface with a dark surface that absorbs not only a lot of heat, but also releases heat from the ocean back out. And so you get these um, feedback loops that uh, warming produces warming and produces warming. And the, the other thing that happens up there is it, is it warms it starts melting the permafrost Hmm. and the permafrost, which covers 60% of the area up there um, 
contains many billions of tons of carbon and greenhouse gases in the form of, um, and, 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 and also in the form of methane. Right. What that, the danger there is that as it releases this, it also warms the earth, leading to further releases, and then you could get an unstoppable warming. No one can say with certainty what the tipping point is. It's just that you don't want to go there. Um, and so, yes, the, the changes in the Arctic don't stay in the Arctic, um, to borrow the Las Vegas slogan. Right. right. Well, that works. So, <laughs> so for years, we've been told that we all need to make personal sacrifices. We need to drive a hybrid in our electric car. You need to turn off lights. You need to be energy conscious. You need to save water. You need to conserve. We need to be good global citizens. But is that enough? Because the way I look at it, we could all do this day and night and not make a dent until two two entities get in the game. One is big business and the other are world governments, countries. They- well, both, both of them will respond to the consumer. I mean, we're, consumer spending 70% of the economy. That means consumers have control. If they start getting climate conscious in their purchases, energy efficient, that sort of thing, if people just do that, businesses will follow. They're not gonna say, no, don't do that. Mm -hmm. They will follow. And then if the business and the finance community follows, the politicians will follow. They're they're, they're last in the chain. They're never gonna lead on this, Um, but they will follow. And so I think one of the problems has been is that the issue has been politicized and so, there's never been a sort of coherent, strong, universal voice to do the things we need to do in order to avert this catastrophe. Um, and uh, I think, unfortunately, until the costs, which are very real right now, become so big that they can't be ignored, um, uh, we aren't going to see much in the way of action. But in the meantime, um, individual consumers can do a hell of a lot to sort of um, uh, change change the direction of the train. The problem with the way we do business with our modern economic system is essentially because the incentives for business are usual or such, they blind us to long-term threats. And we have, we essentially have an economic system that's designed to drive off cliffs. Um, And until we represent these long-term threats in the way in which we do business, um, we, we have a problem about changing in order to, meet the threat at the scale which must be done. So so what do we do? I mean, you talk about the cliff. Is there a path back from the cliff? Because, you know, the IPCC says it's now or never. We've reached the, the I think we're like at the point almost of no return. I, I Our, think there are two, th- two things, yeah. Um, we are at a point of no return and we can't really go forward. So, um, I, at the end of my book, I propose a, a universal tariff on all nations um, that would only come into play if you fail to reduce your uh, greenhouse emissions on a yearly basis by a certain percentage, say 3% or so. Um, only if something is universal is it going to be um, right. work. Secondly, they're, they're, in order to do something, I, I propose three design features. One is that it can be de- de- deployable now. Two is that it's universal. And three is that it's simple. Um, and the simplicity part of a universal tariff is um, you, you start negotiating exceptions and everything else. And what we will, what we'll get is what we've actually had for the last 30 years, which is endless negotiations and no action whatsoever. That's been the story. That's the story I tell in my book about why we fail to act. 
And one reason is, is that the complexity leads to endless negotiations over the fine print and everything else, exceptions. And then the exceptions, of course, then drive the train. Um, the simplicity of a tariff is, uh, is one of its attractions. The second is it could be deployed immediately. And the third is that it could be universal. And I say that because people say, well, what would China do? Well, to me, China would have the easiest time meeting uh, any sort of reduction just because it is one of the least energy efficient nations in the planet. Mm. There's only 11 nations that are less energy efficient than China. Energy efficiency pays for itself. Uh, for homeowners, um, you get lower monthly costs. For a business, you get higher profits. That is why Amory Lovins, who founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, says that energy efficiency since 95 has produced 30 times the carbon reductions of renewables because everybody loves energy efficiency. So in any case, most of the countries that need to lower their emissions are not energy efficient. Um, the Western countries would have a harder time because they have become much more energy efficient and optimized. But there again, the build out of renewables can help. So there are things we can do. And on the technology side, there are technologies that are zero carbon that are competitive in price with anything else that could be deployed if we had the political will to do it. If we had the political will to do it. So we still have, see, this is the problem. There are still so many hurdles, so many obstacles from individual things, plus the fact that everyone's got to do it. Um, and that's well, what worries me. Enough, everybody will do it. And that's my point is that if you could produce zero carbon electricity at one and a half cents per kilowatt hour, it would sell itself. And that is possible. Um, and in fact, in the next couple of years, I think we'll see that happening. And then it'll be, um, you know, nobody has a Betamax anymore. Right. Um, because <laughs> DDV was better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a painless shift. Um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't hear cries about all the Betamax makers would be right. thrown out of work. But, right. um, you know, we managed to do these transitions seamlessly. Um, and, uh, you know, from desk phones to Fox uh, smartphones, we did that seamlessly. And indeed, battery technology from smartphones has actually led the way for innovation for battery technology for EV vehicles. Huh. So all of these things can happen and, and, and really just by, by price signals, which is one of the reasons why it's been so uh, damaging that the price signals for climate change have been camouflaged and, and haven't been expressed because we um, and when they do become expressed, it, it 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 could be a real crisis for society. Wow. Well, there's there's a lot to think about. And one last question for you: What should we as individuals be doing? What we're doing no, I, now? I just I, I think simply by being conscious of the degree to which your purchases and choices impact the climate. Um, and it, it, I don't think it, it. You know, you don't have to be carrying around lists in your head. Uh-huh. Um, it was certainly getting a car that gets 60 miles to a gallon um, is uh, probably better than getting a car that 12 miles a gallon. I think <laughs> nobody who, who drives a pickup truck and complains has any reason to complain about high gas prices right. because they made a choice to drive it. And, uh, you know, and, and um, my son, when he goes on a ski trip, borrows uh, 
you know, his mother's car because it's a, a, a plug-in hybrid oh. and it saves him $60 a trip. <laughs> well, there's a choice that you can make. Um, and there's a, a lot of other choices, but I mean, just being aware of it and orienting yourself to it will lead you to the right choices down the road. Insulating the house, for instance, saves right. your money. All right. But we've all got to do it. We've all got to do it. The yeah. book is Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. Uh, it's available now. Eugene London, thank you so much. It was uh, you know, there's a lot of great information here, and I hope everybody reads it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Enjoyed you. it a lot. It is a tough subject, but we are living it. It's it's happening. We've been warned about it for decades, and it's here. And if we don't do something to stop it, I, there's nothing. <laughs> that, that's it. So we've got our work cut out for us. All right. We've just got like another minute or so left. So let me leave you with something warm and pretty wonderful. Vice President Kamala Harris, when she presided over the Senate for the the confirmation vote for Judge Jackson, brought with her some official stationery of the vice president. And she gave some to the two black members of the Senate who voted for Judge Jackson's confirmation, Cory Booker and Reverend Raphael Warnock. And she asked them to use that stationery to write a letter about the significance of what's going on to a girl in their life. A sweet thing, right? And, um, well, here's what Reverend Warnock wrote. He wrote to his daughter, Chloe. He wrote, Dear Chloe, today we confirmed Kentaji Brown Jackson to the United States Supreme Court. In our nation's history, she is the first Supreme Court justice who looks like you with hair like yours. While we were voting on the floor of the Senate, a friend of mine, the Vice President of the United States, handed me this piece of paper and suggested I write a note to someone who comes to mind. By the way, she is the first Vice President who also looks like you. So I wrote this note to say you can be anything, achieve anything you set your head and heart to do. Love you, Dad. That's a good note to wrap up the show on, don't you think? Brad and Desi will be back next time. Thank you for hanging with me. I'm Nicole Sandler. Find me at NicoleSandler.com and here whenever. Uh, Until next time, good luck, world. We really need it.